happy and sad, good and bad, which the Gita teaches, all arise in the mind, um, which is the sixth, if you will, of the five knowledge-acquiring senses, to which, in a sense, the sense impressions are relayed and decisions are made of good and bad, happy and sad, and they distance us from one another because your happies may be my sads, your goods may be my bads, and um, and so this is a reading of the environment that's not accurate. Is it hot or is it cold? It's totally relative to um, a person's senses. One person may think it's hot, one person may think it's cold. Hmm? So of course the real reading is it's 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 neither of those. Those are just readings of the environment through the uh, the lens of the mind and and the senses. And so that kind of duality, then uh, all the Vedantists advocate that we must uh, rise above. And having done so, then there are uh, nuanced forms of Vedanta that speak about a non-dualism within transcendence of different types or a dualism within transcendence or a dualism and a non-dualism so forth and so on. Uh, you have the four schools of Vedanta the, and then the are Vaishnava in the fifth which is the uh, um, the uh, monistic Advaita lineage they, their school is called Advaita, non-dual. And then you have the Dvaita of Madhva, which is dualism. And you have the qualified dualism, Vishishta Dvaita of Ramanuja. And you have the Shuddha Dvaita, pure non-dualism of the um, Vishnu Swami and the Balabhasambhadaya, same lineage. Then you have the dvaita uh, dvaita 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 dual and non-dualism of Nimbarka. And then you have the achintya beta veda. Hmm. Inconceivable dualism and non-dualism. Hmm. It's different than beta beta of or dvaita dvaita of Nimbarka because of the word achintya, which says that the reality is one and different in, at the same time, and the oneness and the difference, the unity and the and the and, and the difference are interpenetrating one another inconceivably. So the achint word is a big word, whereas Dwayta, Nimbarka's Dvaita Dvaita or Beta Beta says so reality is sometimes one, sometimes different. Hmm. We're saying they want a different at the same time. And we know that doesn't make s- sense. Logically, that's not possible, but it is the nature of reality. And how is it so? By the Achinti Shakti of Bhagwan. Hmm who can make the impossible possible. Hmm. So all of those things are different readings of reality, all of which are a reading of reality that rises above the duality created by the mind and the senses of perception. Hmm. So he's not talking about that type of duality. When he says idealism, hmm, idealism is um, probably in, in his time... Um, and still holds true today. There are obviously there are nuanced forms of it. Um, when I say there are many forms of dualism, monism, idealism, it's all about consciousness, the nature of consciousness, which has become a big field nowadays, as we've discussed, in, in ways that it wasn't for the longest time in intellectual thought world, philosophical world scientific world, philosophy is so much informed by empirical, observable evidence. Um, and um, with the, as I've said before, the kind of mechanistic worldview, the world's a machine, it's all parts are there, it's all working fine, and so forth. There was a determinism, so the idea of a conscious entity having will and, and, um, and determining the world outside of itself and its mechanism just was uh, not a thought that uh, 
entered in or was entertained because they thought they'd understood the world and it's all works like this. There's no room for anything from outside, so forth. So, but with quantum physics, then there's indeterminism uh, on some level and and some very well um, um, kind of persons very well acquainted with with uh, the, the quantum theory do. Um, uh, Acknowledge that it is about the interaction between consciousness, or, or they would say mind, but consciousness and the brain. Hmm? And so, anyway, some indeterminism and some room for a kind of dualism, hmm? if you will. So, there's all kinds of dualism hmm? in, in the world of, yeah. of philosophy today. But that's all rather new from the time of Bhakti Vinod, which he's writing that, you know, at the turn of the, the beginning of the 20th century. I think the quantum idea was maybe the 1920s or something like that. So, maybe before the time of Bhakti Vinod. So, idealism, he's probably speaking of something like Berkeley's idealism. Um, it's probably the philosopher that Berkeley here in California is named after. And um, his idealism is basically that that everything is mind or consciousness or thought, and the, there is no real external world. Hmm? Now, the, the shift in thinking hmm, due to the um, uh, quantum perspective... Hmm, the shift in thinking is such. This is an example of it. It's a, it's it's such a radically uh, different outlook on nature, on matter, that that idealism, which was a school of thought, Berkeley and some others, had really kind of just kind of pushed way to the background. Hmm? Um, their idea being that there's no real matter; it's only thoughts. Hmm? Um, uh, you know, with a lot of observable evidence about matter and the ability to manipulate matter and accomplish things and so forth, this idealism was kind of pushed to the to the background. But you know, the shift, as a result of quantum perspective, is such that even idealism today is is is, is getting its um, getting its uh, a, a more attention. Some forms of idealism. And then you'll find some some kind of neo-Advaitans hmm, mixing it up with quantum theory and coming up with the, the, uh, monistic idealism. And uh, so uh, I believe that Bhaktivinoda Thakur, in using the word idealism, is speaking about that kind of Monism. As I said the other day, there's a materialistic monism that's popular. Physicalism. There's only one monism. It's all matter. Hmm? And then the, the, op- the antithesis of that is the Shankars. It's all consciousness. Hmm? There's no matter. Hmm? So idealism then is a, is a kind of a Western, in a sense, perspective that's similar to the Dvaita, without all the details of the way to Vedanta and and uh, and, and so on, <clears throat> and so he's probably referring to something uh, like that. Berkeley's idealism, or uh, you could call Shankar's idealism, <clears throat> and um, he seems to be, from what you said from the quote, advocating idealism. Real idealism must be, was it a dual? Must be dualistic. Hmm. So when, he, when I think when he's using the term idealism, he's speaking about a notion that consciousness is primary. Hmm. Ideas means consciousness, thought. That the thought world, the consciousness world, consciousness proper, is is primary, is foundational. Hmm. And if you want to go on that side, which of course we do, as I use the term subjective, the subjective world 
is the real world. That doesn't mean there isn't matter, but we think matter is the real world, and and our thoughts are only well, that's only in your mind, kind of thing. <laughs> What's in your mind? Maybe everything's in your mind. The world's in your mind. The Sri Ramar said, "A stone is a conception." Hmm? So, so that's a kind of a form of idealism, if you will. But when we say that a stone is an idea, what we are saying is it's it's a it's a it's it's a subjective reading of something. There's something called called matter, called Maya Shakti. What it is, who can say? Vishnu Maya. To try to say what it is is to try to capture it, to measure it, and Maya means to measure, and then Maya means illusion. So you're an illusion if you think. Mama Maya, Krishna says. Mama Maya, Duratyaya. I think it was Vishwanath Chakritakrasis, and he's pointing to his chest. Mama Maya, Duratyaya. My Maya, Duratyaya. That is insurmountable. You cannot overcome that. You cannot harness that, capture that in the fist of your intellect. You grab it here, and it comes out over there. And it's, uh, when, when Parikshit Maharaj, the Raj, Emperor asked the sage Sukadev to speak to him about material nature, by which also God would be better known because it's an aspect of him. Sukadev prefaced his whole discussion in the fifth canto by saying, I will tell you what the Puranic historians of the time say about it, but with the caveat, with the footnote, that it is the transformation of the modes of nature, of the gunas. Very constantly. Like the three three shells, where's the pea? It's there, no? It's over here. No, it's over They're constantly transforming. It's constantly in flux. Hmm? We're the observer of the, the constant observer of the ever-changing material phenomenon. Hmm? And so, you know, what we call the laws of physics today may not be the laws of physics tomorrow, or they may not apply in other parts of the universe or other universes in the same way. And How vast is it? I mean, we see just from science today how big the world has gotten compared to how big it, we thought it was only, you know, 50 or years or so ago. Things like the Hubble telescope or something like that. I think on the basis of that, they they found like, you know, as many galaxies as there are grains of sand or something practically. And then in a, in, a, in a galaxy, there's so many stars, I guess, and so many planets. And it's like looking into Krishna's mouth. Meliasota looks in to see if he's eating dirt. And she sees Krishna inside and herself looking inside. She looks again, and there's another Krishna, another like this. Hmm? Krishna had e- Krishna was Krishna had um, had been eating dirt, and so some of the boys complained to Mother Soda, "Your son's eating dirt." So said, what? How is he? You know, we feed him so nicely. He's eating dirt. What cow can this be? So then she asked him. Hmm. I think Balaram was also. Yes, he's eating dirt. So she said, why are you eating dirt? No, I'm not eating dirt. No. So she said, well, then open your mouth. You rascal, we'll see. So he opened his mouth, and there she saw the whole universe inside. And in the universe she saw the planet Earth, and in the planet Earth she saw Vrindavan, and in Vrindavan she saw herself looking into Krishna's mouth. And inside of that mouth she saw another universe, and so this is a teaching long before the Hubble telescope. Hmm? There was a, a, or a string theory and so forth. There's the multiverse, etc. I mean, theory, multiverse is, is a way of saying that there now there's a, there are theories that there's not just one universe, there's many universes. And the Bhagavatam has universes emanating from the poreholes on the body of Mahavishnu. You can imagine how many 
pore holes there are in your body. Hmm? And he's a big guy, Mahavishnu. So uh, it's a way of saying, of course, that their conception, hmm? this is ancient, but their conception of the material reality was that it's infinite. Hmm? There's no beginning to it. There's no end to it. You can't... It doesn't start, doesn't end. Uh, it doesn't... Uh, you can't go so many miles and go beyond it in one direction or another direction. And uh, and so forth. Well, and while Shastra talks about this universe in a particular way and so forth, this is its overarching um, perspective. And it's a, it's a new and theoretical perspective in today's world. It's questionable by some. Some are hanging on to the idea that there's only one universe. String theory can't be demonstrated. It's not even science. Some scientists will say, some very well-educated scientists, of course, are at the forefront of the string theory and the multiverse theories of different types. And they're very complex, and you have to have, you know, education in that, or it'll sound like Gaudi Vaishnavism sounds like to one of them. When we speak about it, <laughs> it's a whole language and how they use words and so forth. But at any rate, this is a newer theory. The Christian idea would be that there's only, I guess, one universe, and science was also thinking along those lines, but the Bhagavatam says differently. The idea being, again, that the Maya, the Maya Shakti, it's real. There is something called the Maya Shakti. There is something called matter, but it's not what it appears to be. And this is what observable evidence today is also telling us. Like I said, they say what 90, whatever, some percent, 99% of the world is space. So between every atom, there's a huge space, and within every atom, between electrons, I guess, and protons, and whatever quarks, there's huge amounts of space. Or some space. I don't know. Anyway, the world is mostly space. So that, you know, like where's the stuff that you hold on to? The hard things that we perceive with our with our senses. And, and so, this is a nice example from observable evidence that the senses are going to give us a perfect reading of the nature of of the world. Of course, they're realizing that with with their senses and the extension of their senses. But what they're realizing is it's pretty difficult to get your your hand on. And 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 the, while we sometimes think of science as being very definitive and so forth, these um, um, hypothetical scientific hypotheticals are vastly at odds with one another hmm, theories and so forth. Um, and that's just one example: multiverse versus there's just one universe. And, and so on. So, um, so the point being that that, that Mama Maya, Krishna's Virati, it's you can't you can't harness that. You cannot measure that. You cannot measure means to understand to 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 be above. If I can measure it, then I can see its beginning. I can see its end. I'm above it. I understand it completely, and very poetically, but accurately, we can say. The Bhagavatam describes the nature of, of the world. What do you mean it describes the nature of the world? It has all this folk science in there, folk psychology, you know. But in, this, in one word, maya, it, it, it describes it as it really is. And thus uh, implores us to turn our attention to ideas, to the thought world, and, and, and to the thinker more so. It also it identifies, of course, a subtle form of matter and, and the laws that govern it, the, the, the mind and so forth. And then there's the consciousness proper, the self, that mind kind of being in the interface between the brain and the consciousness, where perceptions, qualitative experiences of what matter must be like appear, reds, blues, pains, happiness, these are qualitative experiences. They are all appearing in the mind. Hmm? They have a subjective quality to them, hmm? but they are qualitative experiences 
of matter. And the experiencer, who gives life to the whole thing, is, of course, different than than the mind. It is that experience of the jiva, the atma, is experiencing matter in the mind, in the world of the mind. The world is kind of, mind is kind of like the theater of experience, which is a very Cartesian kind of the term, but um, which is the, the, the classical kind of beginning of, of Western dualism, substance dualism, the difference between consciousness and matter. So we would be some kind of substance dualism, dualist in one sense. We say there's a substance called consciousness and there's a substance called matter. But that would, but there are many forms of that. So to, I, I've coined a, a phrase to give an English kind of contemporary rendering of a chintya beta beta, inconceivable oneness and difference. We would say something like, where our school is one of transrational, dualistic non-dualism. Because ours is a school of non-dualism. This is clearly stated in the Bhagavatam. Vadanti tat tatvavidas tatvajyadgyanam advayam. Gyanam advayam means non-dual consciousness or knowledge, non-dual reality. So the Bhagavatam says, learned sages have come to the conclusion that the nature of existence is that it is non-dual advaigyantattva, non-dual knowledge. Knowledge here means luminosity, consciousness. Hmm? Um, that means knowledge. Knowledge is that is 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 is, is when we use the term knowledge, we mean um, what is to be known. Uh, it's, it's I've said before. It's we, we use a synonym of, of, of luminosity, enlightenment, light. So light is not something that's lit by another light to see it. It's self-luminous. Hmm? So consciousness is self-luminous. It's, it's knowing. Hmm? It's aware. It's knowing. It's... Uh, uh, it reveals. Hmm? Is the point, of course... Yeah. It can be covered. The Atma can be covered. This is another reason, as an aside, why we say that the Sarup Shakti is not inherent in the Jiva. Therefore, the Sarup, the form of the Jiva for Leela, is not inherent in the Jiva. It comes to us through association, through Bhakti. Why? Because my point is the Sarup Shakti, while the Atma can be covered by Maya, Sarup Shakti cannot be covered by Maya. Sarup Shakti dissipates the cloud, the fog, the shadow of Maya. So if we were constituted of Sarup Shakti, then how could the Maya Shakti cover us? It couldn't. Hmm? Sarup Shakti can never be covered by Maya, otherwise there would be no, no Golok, no place to go from which there was no return. Hmm? The cloud of Maya could have an effect. People would become illusioned and fall down, and of course some people think that's what happens. There's a planet like that that people say sometimes. I think that Iskon is a is a is one of the Baikunta planets. Guy told me that once. I said, "Yeah, it's the one everybody falls from." <laughs> so that's a, another point, but uh, <laughs> but at any rate. So the Bhagavatam says that the consciousness is reality, God, ultimate reality is non-dual. This is what it means. It means, then it goes on to say, Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavaniti, Shabdhiti. We know it variously. It's known variously as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. Known variously by these means by different processes, which are very different. And... um, their orientation is different, their ideal is different, so they, their ideal corresponds with different faces of the Absolute. All of which are Satchit Ananda, but all of which have an emphasis either on Sat, Anchit, or Ananda. Brahman has its emphasis on Sat, um, Paramatma Anchit, knowing, the Paramatma, all-knowing, in every heart, in every atom. Brahman, existence, Enduring existence, being, and Bhagawan. Which element is that focused on? 
Hmm? Ananda. Ananda, that's right. Ananda, love. Hmm? And so, as you go from Brahman to Paramatma to Bhagawan, you're going from a non-dual to a dualistic perspective. In Brahman, um, there's no other to be experienced. Hmm? In yoga, there's another. So yoga sutra is dualistic. Hmm? Astanka yoga is dualistic. Hmm? Ishwar is there. And Ishwar Pranidhan, to, to, to surrender the Ishwar, is the most advocated uh, in the, in the um, yoga sutras. Um, but it culminates, that kind of Ishwar Pranidhan, surrender to the to the to the, to the Ishwar, um, and then you look at who who's writing the book Patanjali, who's his Ishwar? He's a disciple of Vyas, so Vishnu. Hmm. Um, uh, but that culminates in Shantarasa. Hmm. It means some bhakti is factored in, as it's described in the Gita, Ashtanga Yoga, with some mixture of bhakti in the sixth and the eighth chapters. It culminates in Shantarasa. So Shantarasa means there's another to view, but nothing, not much to do. Hmm. Then we go to Bhagwan and Dasya, Sakya, Batsali, Madhuri, and the more you go, and the more movement there is. Hmm. And the more moving the object of love is. Hmm. Hmm. In Brahman, there's no other object. In yoga, there's another object, but he's still. Hmm. And in bhakti, and in Brahman, Bhagawan, there's another object, and he's moving, many-faced. So, in that sense, we're non-dualists. And what are we saying? We're saying these are different faces of the Absolute. Who is the Shaktiman, the energetic, and, and therefore has energies, or Shaktis, or potencies? which have no independent existence from him. So if my energies have no independent existence from me, then they're one with me. They're not different from me. At the same time, I could talk about the energies and I could talk about me. Then again, if I want to talk about me comprehensively, I'll talk about my energies, by which I do different things, by which I'm known. You understand? You could say, I know Swami. What do you know about him? Well, I know who he is. I know there's a guy called Swami. Okay. Another person could say, I know Swami. What do you know about him? Well, I know he writes books. He has ashrams. He does this. He has cows. And so the things that I'm doing by my powers, by my shakti, hmm? by knowing that, you know me more comprehensively. By knowing the Shakti of Bhagavan, and we can know him if we say Jai Radhe. Hmm. That's a fact. I mean, this is the whole dilemma. Hmm. There was a debate apparently took place recently between two Vaishnavas as to whether or not Krishna hmm, was ever not omniscient. One person said, yes, he certainly at times is not omniscient. The other one said, he never loses his omniscience. Very simply, though, I heard about it, but I don't know the details. But the one who said that Krishna is, is at times not omniscient was correct. And the very simple answer is, if he knows everything at all times and he's fully omniscient, why is he asking the questions that he asks? What are the questions that he asks? What is the bliss of Radha? What is the the um, sweetness in me that she perceives? What is the nature of her love for me? What is it in me that makes her what she is, that makes her attractive to me? Makes her the object of my love when I am the object of everyone's love. If I'm the object of everyone's love, but I'm attracted to her, does that mean she's God? He said, that doesn't make sense. I'm God. Hmm? So he has to think about it. Hmm? 
Why is he asking the questions if he's omniscient? And is omniscience the full face of knowing? We would say no. Omniscience is not the full face of knowing because knowing has a purpose. Knowing is a purpose of informing action by which we can become perfectly happy. And so the knowledge and love is a kind of ignorance. Love is a kind of dualism, actually, also. Love is a kind of ignorance. Where there are many things you don't know, but you don't need to know them. You don't care about them. You're not interested in them. Because what you know is fully satisfying you. So you, you have the end of knowledge. That's what Krishna says in the Gita, that manmanabhava madbhakta, this is Rajavidya. To love me is the, is the end of knowledge. He doesn't say omniscience is. And God's omniscience, but he's playing. And he plays very well. So in the play, in the Leela, he asks these questions. And he's startled at first to think about it. What is it about her that does to me what it does? And I'm supposed to be the perfect object of love. And he's very thoughtful, so he, he thinks about it and he comes to the conclusion that there's something in me that I cannot, that I don't know, that she knows, that makes her the way she is. That's the devotee's perspective. And Radha is the devotee par excellence. So he, he says, in order for me to know that, which makes her Mahabhav Swarupani, the very form of Mahabhav, or the supreme ecstasy of love, I have to view myself through her eyes. Then I can know that. It means then I can experience that. Otherwise not. That is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course. So, so the very, as I said the other day, the very person of Krishna implies some unknowing. But it's perfect knowing. It means he's, this is God under the under, under the under the influence of his Sarup Shakti, over, kind of um, uh, controlled as he is by love, hmm? conquered by love, overwhelmed by love. This is very beautiful, very charming idea. So this is Bhakti and Bhagwan, Sri Krishna. If you look at it carefully, if, if Bhagwan rather than Brahman, Paramatma, and Brahman is the feature or the face of God that's about love, then we look amongst the various faces of Bhagavan Narayan. We see Krishna, we say, well, this is, this is where the love is fully expressed, therefore this must be the fullest face of Bhagavan, if Bhagavan is that face of God that's about love. Therefore, Krishna's too, Bhagavan's way. Krishna's the source, even Narayan and all the avatars, and so on and so forth. And he has innumerable shaktis. Parasya shakti vibhidaiva shriyate. Gaudi Vaishnava is all about the shakti, but talking about the shakti, and there are many shaktis, but the three basic shaktis are the maya shakti, the jiva shakti, and the sarup shakti. And bhakti is constituted of sarup shakti. The jiva has its own constitution of consciousness, satchit, ananda, and so forth, and the maya shakti is asat, achit, Nirananda. Hmm. They're distinct from one another. Hmm. And so there is difference. There's a famous Upanishadic statement that Shankar liked, Sarvam Kalo Idam Brahma. Hmm. Sarvam Kalo Idam Brahma. Sarvam, everything, is Sarvam Kalo Idam Brahma. Everything is Brahman. His interpretation is that is that, that means there is only Brahman. Pujapachidamar said, no, everything is Brahman. And there are things, other things. There are many things. And they're all Brahman. Brahman is many, many faceted. So he has shaktis, and they are also him. But we can also talk about them as different from him. Just like we can talk about fire, which is has energies of heat and light. We could also talk about heat and light, which 
can't be there without fire, so to speak. I mean, you can, we can do it scientifically in some way, extract heat and light, but it, it, it can't be disconnected from its origin, so to speak. We're just using the example of the fire itself. You can't take the heat and the light of the fire. I guess you can kind of throughout the room. But anyway, the heat and the light of the fire are the energies of the fire. So fire is the energetic and the heat and the light are the energies. And they're one with it and kind of different from it at the same time. They don't have a separate existence. They have their origins in the fire. So it is with the many shaktis of Bhagavan, of which we are we're constituted of one of the shaktis of Bhagavan. So, therefore, and we say these shaktis and the shakti man, the energetic source and the energy, they're interpenetrating one another hmm, in a way that's inconceivable. Hmm, and, but it's possible by the inconceivable shakti power, that is, in a sense it means, Bhagavan. He can do things like this. So ours is a transrational, which means achintya, hmm? dualistic non-dualism. It's a form of non-dualism. Hmm? As the Bhagavatam says, advaigyantattva. Hmm? But a dualistic form of non-dualism, which is transrational, <laughs> which is achintya, something like that. But what Bhaktivinathakura is talking about then is the idea that idealism, this being basically an emphasis on ideas, on the thought world, on the subjective world, a world view that makes consciousness primary. Mm-hmm. I think this is the way he's talking in a general way about any form of idealism, where, where ideas, consciousness, subjective world, is primary. Any idealism, what do you say, is ultimately must be dualistic. Hmm. Hmm. So idealism has to acknowledge, here he's saying, that some existence of matter, but it's not what it appears to be. Hmm. It's illusory in that sense, that your perception of what it is is not what it is, what it's like. And you can never fully grasp it. Hmm. Hmm. But it does exist. And there's a kind of interactionism. We could be called that, something like that. Interactional, interactionists. We think there's an interaction between consciousness and matter, which is a problem for people. How can a material substance influence a material substance? Where will the point of contact be? But the contact can be by energy, by force, just by conjunction. So when one moves, the other moves. Like the shadow moves, when the person moves. But you don't touch your shadow. How's that shadow moving? Unless you can see the, the body. You see the body, and so the body's moving, so the shadow's moving. So There's different ways that even in, in the modern world, people have tried to surmount the problem for many people dilemma for many people. If, if there is something immaterial, how does it move the material? They're thinking of it in a very billiard ball kind of a concept that for, for there to be movement, there has to be physical contact. But even Newton, with his theory of gravity, dismisses that, although that's now has been incorporated, obviously, into science. We can't really measure gravity itself. You can't measure, you can measure what something is done by gravity and therefore we think we measure gravity. Actual gravity itself can't be measured. And so that in a sense defies the idea that physical contact is necessary for motion. Do you follow? Unless I touch it, you won't move, no? There are forces. That's why you see the terms materialism go to naturalism, to physicalism, because they start to include forces also. Hmm? Well, we've got to include this gravitational force. It wasn't known before, and it was thought only by physical contact, one thing with another, is there motion. Hmm? When, Newton, <laughs> when Newton 
came with this theory of gravity, they thought, oh, he's gone back to occultism. Hmm? We were getting out of the superstition and occultism and paganism and so forth and finding out how things really work. And here he's talking about things moving without physical contact. But the fact is, larger bodies, I guess it is, attract smaller bodies. Why? <laughs> Why do they? See, that's not, a, that's not an answered question. They do it by a force called gravity that we can't measure, but we see its effect, so we know it's there. We could say, we see the effect of consciousness, therefore we know it's there. How it moves, matter, that's relative to what it's about. It has such powers. People don't like that. People who want to explain everything. We're happy with the idea that, 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 that uncertainty. We're happy with the idea of uncertainty. We find it to be bigger, more accommodating. The materialist is not happy with uncertainty. He wants, she wants, to know certain, certainly how everything works. So if there's a gap in the explanation, it has to be filled and with observable evidence. And This is, whole thing is a folly. You see, our theory is there is no certainty. There is some certainty, but there's... Love is a certainty in which there's uncertainty. Hmm. That's a fact. Do you love me? You never say you do. Hmm. There's a feeling like that. There's a certainty in it. Hmm. But where it will take me, that's that's, always all unpredictable. Love moves in a crooked way. Sri Rupa says in Ujjmalmani, love moves in a crooked way like a snake. So it may go this way, it may go that way. It doesn't just go like this. It always happens the same way. Hmm? And sometimes it looks just the opposite. Radha is upset with Krishna, doesn't want anything to do with him. That means she really wants something to do with him. Hmm? Uh, that was called man. Hmm? Anyway, so, so that's an explanation of it in the verse, but it has further implications, as they say. So there's some kind of uncertainty. We are depicting Bhagwan as being in some uncertainty, which is just the very nature of love, where it will go, unpredictable. Hmm? And there's some certainty within that. We get some certainty. We get see. We get we get addicted to certainty because we get some sense of certainty through science, through measuring. There is some measuring that we can do, hmm? by which we can accomplish various practical tasks that are useful to us in terms of our human perspective. Hmm? And so, we'll go and measure more. And we become more certain about how everything is. But really, science is only kind of a pragmatic truth. Hmm? By doing this and this, you're going to get this. Okay, we know that. (laughs) But it doesn't tell us about the nature of being. When you start to try to explain... hmm? the origins of the world, so it just becomes very, very, very speculative. and That's why they say, there's a saying, that God is always present in physics. You can't like get away from that kind of theistic possibility. It's just too, whatever, unpredictable. Or, I mean, that there are theories and they're interesting and mathematically whatever, Truthful, but but to get a grip grip on the whole thing is not possible. Hmm? Plato is thought to be the father of all philosophy in the West, and some people say the greatest philosopher. Of course, and he had the idea that there was a world of mathematical truths, a non-physical world of, where mathematical truths lived. Hmm? It, it's something like the Veda. Hmm? Was the idea? Like the personified Veda, the verses of the Veda—they're mathematical truths, and they're the world they come from. It's non-material. But at any rate, I'm saying that there's some uncertainty. Materialism wants certainty. Get a grip on everything. We're okay with the idea that you can't know everything. 
Therefore it said in Upanishads, he who says he knows Brahman, she does not know Brahman. And she who says, she who says, he who says, I know Brahman, she does not know Brahman. She who says, I don't know Brahman, he knows Brahman. (laughs) Something like that. Unknown, unknowable. I find it accommodating. Never boring. The truth is such you cannot arrest it in the fist of your intellect, which is such a small thing. And then we come to the idea that, but if you if you if you stop trying to know and learn to love, move with the heart rather than the head, then if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. So the secret that you need, according to this, the idea of the Vedanta, that that nature will tell you, here's my real secret. You want to know, I've got a soul and it's you. Hmm? In human form. Hmm? In other words, there's consciousness behind me, my, my movements. And when it, when, it, when, I, when it comes in a human shape, hmm? a shape made out of human nature, hmm? then it starts to know about itself. Hmm? starts to think about itself. So nature says, I've got a soul and it's you and it's more it's 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 what turns me on. You turn me on, nature says. I want to turn you towards yourself and I'm pushing you in that direction. And to that which can tell you definitively about yourself, that which comes from the subjective world. That's the, the revelation, the Upanishads, and so forth. So this, anyway, consciousness-based reality, that consciousness is, is, is primary, ideas, subjective world is primary, the objective world is not primary. We are so out of balance, you see it. The objective world is the real world. That's just an idea. You don't think like that when you dream, if you're deeply in the dream. It doesn't even exist, that world. You're now in a dream world. And the laws are different there. All kind of crazy things can happen. It would be crazy, I'd say, from the waking perspective. There's no logical reason to make the objective waking state more real than the dream state. And then there's deep sleep and the fourth beyond hmm? consciousness proper. So, oh, it's such a bigger idea hmm, than materialism, such a narrow idea. Hmm? And, and it, it, it promotes such a narrow-mindedness, hmm? a meanness. Hmm? There's, no, there's no place for caring in any absolute ontological sense. Hmm. You understand? There's no place for caring. Caring would be just some kind of like emergent property of the brain. It comes and goes and it's not real. It's real but it has no real real bearing. Hmm? It's only a it's only just a human construct. Hmm. That doesn't, that's not very inviting, obviously. Hmm. And it, it's, a, it's a worldview, because I often say it's a talk that, that nobody can walk. Nobody. But it's uh, very much promoted, and, and largely because we do get some practical results from some measurement that we're allowed to do, that we can use for our human uh, purposes. And that creates or fosters the illusion that we could control the whole thing. We are in control. Of course, then, the idea becomes we are matter and nothing matters. So idealism is very, very different. And Dr. Yuno is saying that 
that um, it has to uh, be dualistic for it to be valid. It's, it's kind of a. It's, it's he's probably making a case against the Dwaita Vedanta. Hmm? It's all right if you want idealism, hmm? but not if in the pursuit of that you do away with the world altogether. Hmm? That it is illusory, that's a fact. But that it doesn't exist, that we don't accept. Hmm? And that's Shankar's point. It's very, it does not exist. Matter, that's his, that's his theory. Hmm? How the even perception of it then exists, which is dualistic, is a problem for the Shankar's philosophy. That's where they have a hard time. Uh, that's the whole, so to speak, that mm, not everybody can so readily agree with. That's the thing. You'll agree with certain aspects, but you get to this part. If there's only one, how can there be a perception of two? Well, it's a superimposition on Brahman. Where does that come from? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So he's saying if you want an idealism, or consciousness is primary, like Shankar, that's okay. But it has to be, at the same time, a... Uh, um, be dualistic. Dualistic idealism. Mm-hmm. Inconceivable dualistic idealism. Transrational, non-dual, uh, dualistic non-dualism. You don't want to say non-dual dualism. You want to say dualistic non-dualism. That's Gaudi Vedanta. Because it's Advaigyan Tattva, it's non-dual. Dualistic non-dualism, inconceivable, transrational. Oh, okay, well, that's some reasoning about the transrational. <laughs> it's not unreasonable, but it picks up where reason leaves off, which gives us hope, God, that everything is not subject to reason alone. What a boring life that would be. Hmm. So, the addiction... Everything must be make sense and be known. Hmm. Some comfort with unknowing. We have to come to that. Hmm. With some uncertainty. That makes for a lively reality. Some uncertainty. Hmm. Some hope. Hmm. Again, if you know everything... Then, then what? Great. Now I know everything. Now what? That's the end. Hmm. This is a suicide for us. That's the tomb. The tomb of samadhi. No. <laughs> we don't want to enter there. All right. What's the time? Okay. Well, it's good to be with all of you. It's a lively group. And... Um, I look forward to going. I look forward to returning. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll keep you posted from 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 Audubon. I've got some speaking engagements there. They've lined up with some yoga schools. They're very keen to have me there. Apparently in San Jose, and um, much to do with Audubon itself. So, guys, you see, Guru Gauranga ki jai, Guru Bhakta Brinda ki jai. Oh, Brahmananda.